Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, welcome everyone to the Determined Truth Podcast. How's it going, Rob? I'm doing well, Vinny. How are you? Oh, living the dream. Hey, uh, we're going to do something a little different uh, for the next few episodes. It's going to be not like our normal uh, discussing something in that kind of format. But Rob, you are leading a class on the gospel right now. And what we want to do is we actually want to be able to utilize that teaching in that class over the next four episodes. Uh, So tell us what's going on with that class. What's the genesis of that class? What are you doing there? Yeah, so we're doing a course on the gospel. We're using the gospel of Mark as our primary text to kind of work our way through Mark. And I'll do that over the course of several courses. But the question that we want to ask is, what is the gospel? And what I find is that many Christians can't answer that simple question. And when they do answer the question, most of them can answer it, but I don't think they're answering it. They're not answering it adequately. Uh, And what I mean by that is we're usually giving some answer along the lines of what Jesus did for me. He died for my sins, so I can go to heaven when I die. And those things are true and correct, but it's not the gospel in totality. The irony, of course, is that the gospel in some of its fullness is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, right? What I say in the class is that Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. And then we add that by saying, yeah, and what it means is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And so here we have this gospel about it's about me. It's about me. It's about me. And yet Jesus says, deny yourself take up your cross and follow me. And so it's this, wait a minute, don't you guys see the conflict here that when we tell people about Jesus and tell people about Christianity, we make it about them. You, if you believe this, you can go to heaven. And so that's, that's the first chance. The second key thing that I wanted to bring out in the study was this number of years ago, I began writing what I was hoping it was going to be a book, but I think it actually is working in them like a couple, couple years worth of blog posts now on the determinedtruth.com blog post. And what I began to look at was to say, I want to address the question of Christians' engagement in secular society, politics, and some of these social issues, and the way we're doing it, not just what it is that we're doing, but the way we're doing it. Because I didn't think that we, were, that we have been reflecting the gospel or doing it in a really a Christian way. But the problem is that as soon as you begin to argue the issue, like the pol- whatever political view that's out there or whatever moral issue that's out there, uh, immediately there's, uh, there's a kickback and, and pushback. No, 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 because this is, this is central. This is vital. This is, and I'm like, wait a So what I thought was we need to have this context of what is the gospel? And then we'll go into what is the kingdom of God? And once we start filling those boxes up there, then we can begin to say, okay, now what does this mean for us as it becomes a Christian face when it comes to politics, things like that? So we're really starting this first study off with saying, what is the gospel? And then we're kind of moving on from there. Great. It's exciting. Well, hey, we hope everyone enjoys uh, these next set of classes. So let's get into this teaching. Like I said, we're going to ask the question, what is the gospel? Uh, and if you want my Facebook feed the last couple of days, I asked that question, what is the gospel? And I got a lot of answers. If you went to my church the last seven years, you better be able to answer the question because uh, I preached like 40 sermons on it. And I, I, guys, I would preach like 30 sermons on it. If you don't know, I say the answer to the question, what is the gospel? And there's a fill in the blank on the notes. Is that Jesus is Lord? It's like you can't get simpler than that. Jesus is Lord is the answer to the question, what is the gospel? Now, obviously, that needs to be unpacked, but I felt for this congregation that if I just kept it to three words, it would be okay. And I'm telling you, I would go like say something somebody else somewhere, like, what's the gospel? And they're like, um, 
uh, you know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I, you got to be kidding me. The answer is three words. And I said it like 40 times, like eight times in one sermon and like 30 sermons overall. That's like 240 times. Anyways, that's not why I quit, but it's maybe a reason why I was thinking about it. Just kidding. So I think the answer is Jesus is Lord. And I think that that simple answer is actually extremely complex and it needs to be unpacked. But I think if we say Jesus is Lord is the totality of the gospel, and then we unpack it, I think it answers all these questions about how do I approach the the issue of abortion? How do I approach the issue of politics? How do I approach the issue of immigration? I think unpacking that actually begins to provide a platform from which we can answer the question, uh, what is that? Now, one of the problems is, is that, well, Jesus is Lord is kind of like trite and it's simplistic and it could be like devoid of meaning. And so I would say this is the most profound thing that can possibly be uttered. And so it's extremely significant to unpack. Now, I think, and I'm not looking at the notes here. Let me, let me pull them up. I think there's another, it's like at the top of the notes page, it was in the top of gospel number one, there was like, most people define the gospel as about, as about me. That's, that's what I think people do. I think that needs to be unpacked a little bit as well. So the first fill in the blank was the gospel is Jesus is Lord. And we're going to spend five weeks, four to five weeks unpacking that. And then I think most people define the gospel as about me. What I mean by that is like, uh, and they're not wrong, but it's really incorrect when you start kind of whittling down to to the nuts and bolts of it. What most people say is they'll say, oh, the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins so that I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die. You might know the go to heaven when I die as well. We need to clarify that a little bit. But that's true, right? Okay, sure. Jesus is Lord and he died for my sins so that I can be forgiven and so, or so that we can be forgiven. And so, but what happens is, is that, and I have a, a, a narrative in there and you can read it later if you haven't already read it, kind of my diatribe on, on what is the gospel there. Um, and so I think it's helpful reading that that's in your notes. Is that we define the gospel as about me, essence of the gospel, and we'll go over this later on, is in Mark 8, if you want, somebody fill in the blank here. If you want to be my disciple, then. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and, uh, yeah, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So I think that verse is probably one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. And I'll probably say that about like a hundred other verses, but anyways, it's on the list. It, it's definitely top 10, along with the other 45 other top 10 verses. But no, Mark 8, 34 through 38, by the way, is like top five, along with like the eight other top fives. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord and I'm not. And yet when most Christians define the gospel, it's he died for me so that I can be saved. It's, it's about me. It's well, he did this. And so there's the Christ centeredness of it, but he did it for me. And I think that kind of detracts from it. Let's think about it this way. And tell me if you think I'm wrong or if you want to comment or add something to this or clarify this. Well, by the way, if you think I'm wrong, I'm just going to kick you off the Zoom call and, and we'll just, you know, be down to like eight. And then there were 12. Uh, just kidding. Because uh, like Jesus, you know, then there were 11. Uh, anyways, sorry, I digress. <laughs> and I totally lost my train of thought. If we say that Jesus is Lord, what we do is we say, 
Oh, when we share the gospel with people, we tell people, hey, look, Jesus is Lord and he's the true God of all gods. And, he, and God loves you so much. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die for you. And he, and he rose again to defeat death so that you could be saved. And you need to believe that so that you can go to heaven and not go to hell. All right, now, ultimately, what we're doing is we're appealing to your self-interest. It's in your best interest to believe this. Now, that's true, right? I mean, okay, yeah, I, that's true. But if I'm believing it simply because it's in my self-interest to believe it, am I really denying myself? I mean, when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he's like, I'm Lord and you're not. And now I understand when we have a youth event, we'll have ice cream and pizza. We need to have a reason to get them there because they're kids. And, and even if we have a Bible study, we're going to have cake and, you know, whatever, you know, and ice, hot fudge Sundays, right, Bill? And, we'll have hot, and John, hot fudge Sundays. There we go. We have reasons to, you know, to get you to come so you can hear the gospel. Okay, we get that. I, that's part of the, the nature of the, of the reality. But ultimately, the gospel is, he's Lord and I'm not. And I think we minimize that quite a bit. So that, that's my diatribe for tonight. So now let's go on. So let's go to Mark chapter one, verse one. And I also want to talk about like how to read the gospels, how to read the Bible, and then introduction of the gospel of Mark two, as we look at this big picture, this big picture story that's going on. Here we go. Mark chapter one, verses one through three. If somebody wants to talk, uh, somebody wants to talk, somebody wants to read them. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God, it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way of, for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. The beginning. So Mark 1 verse 1 is probably the title and not really the first verse. Words, Mark actually meant this to be more of a title. Um, the ancient documents don't have titles with them. But this kind of serves as a title. And it's the beginning of the gospel, and the word for gospel is the word for good news, news. of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This statement, by the way, I I remember every once in a while I'll say something, you know, when I was preaching or when I was writing a blog or whatever, you know, and it's political. Well, you can't have, you know, you should keep politics out of the church, you know. Folks, this statement in Mark 1 verse 1 is so intensely political. It's so anti-Rome that it's going to get you killed if they really recognize what you're saying. Uh, there's an inscription called the Priene inscription, and this is the inscription. And it says this, the pro- it's letter B on my notes there up the top. The providence, which is it's a, an ancient Roman inscription from the first century, from before the time of Jesus. The providence, which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus. Now, let me stop. Augustus is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, This great providence, the perfect consummation has come into human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men. That's like a, a wealthy person who cares for the poor people. That's what a benefactor is. And by sending in him as it were, a savior for us, Augustus, 
The first emperor is the savior for us, us Romans. And those who come after us to make war cease, sounds like Jesus, doesn't it, by the way, right? To make war cease and to create order everywhere. And by the way, Caesar created, ceased wars by just destroying everybody that tried to invoke war against them. That's how he, he used war to stop war. Like, I'm so powerful, you ain't wage, wage war with me. All right, now look, what I have in red. Since the Caesar Augustus, through his appearance, has exceeded the hopes of all the former good messages. And the Greek word for good messages is euangelia, which is the Greek word for good news that occurs in Mark 1, verse 1. The hopes of all former euangelia, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future would surpass him. Since for the world, the birthday of the God, Caesar Augustus is the God, was the beginning of his euangelia. In other words, the birth of Caesar Augustus is the euangelia for the world. Caesar Augustus, his birth is the good news for the world. And who is Caesar Augustus? He's the son of the gods. In the Roman world, the emperor was the son of the gods. And so the way the Roman Empire was structured was the gods oversee the well-being of the empire. The gods have put the, in place the emperor to oversee the empire. So the emperor is a son of the gods. And he's the benefactor for everybody underneath him. And then it, there was there was there were stratas, or maybe for Kurnakar, there was like a caste system in place with the emperor at the top, and everybody else was systematically in order. The people at the top are the benefactors, and the people at the bottom are the poor who have to. Right. And so, like in the local home, the father was responsible for the household to make sure the household maintained order within the household. And if every father maintained order within the household, there would be order within the society. And the entire empire was a household of which Caesar was the father of the household, the entire Roman Empire. But he served as a son of the gods. Now, read Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news, the word good news, the first time we know of that word being used in Greek literature, it was used for Caesar Augustus of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Not Caesar Augustus, the son of the gods. This is massively political. Guys, you worship the wrong king. The right king, the one who's the son of the God, that's who I'm talking about. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean he's Lord and Caesar is not. And that's treason. It's a massively political statement. And it will get you killed without question if it's brought to Caesar's mind. Okay. Now, when I say, so here's the deal. When we say Jesus is Lord and we say, well, Caesar is not. I mean, that's clearly what Mark is saying. Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The problem with that is it takes our mind off of ourselves a little bit. Okay. No king. But by the way, that, that already speaks into American political life in the church already, doesn't it, by the way, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, because we act like the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or my presidential candidate, he's actually the Lord and the benefactor of the, of the world. It's like, no, actually, 
um, the way he keeps peace is through war. And the reason why no one fights war with him is because our king, our president, has more nuclear bombs than your king does. Let's just be honest. That's the way the world works. And so, so it speaks into that. But the problem with us, uh, and I'm speaking to us Americans, and Karina Carr can, can kind of follow along a little bit with us, right? The problem with us Americans is we are so individualistic that I think it's better to say for us Americans is Caesar is Jesus is Lord and I'm not. And, and even in, in, a, in, an, in an Eastern context where Karuna Kar is and anybody else, that's still an important thing to point out as well, by the way, right? Because the question is, is where do I get my safety? Where do I get my security? Where do I get my financial well-being? Where do I get my value? Uh, where do I get whatever else it might be, my comforts and securities? Whatever that answer is, that's your Lord. And Paul and, and Mark's coming along saying, actually, I'm here to tell you, actually, it's Jesus. You get your value in Jesus. You're a son of the gods. He loved you so much. He died for you. Right. You're loved by the God. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks of you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says of you. It doesn't matter what. You know, I was just at a, a group of pastors meeting today, right? And and they're struggling with, am I a good pastor because my church is not large? I'm telling you, by the way, all pastors deal with this unless they have a large church. They're like, oh, I'm such a great pastor, they become arrogant. Serious problem, by the way. And some of you know exactly what I mean. All right, it's it's just a problem. And the answer is, guess what? You are of immense value because you are loved by God. That's what your value is. Now, your job as a pastor is just to go out and do the best job you can. And God, by the way, for pastors, uh, you know, and like if you're in the business world, you know, your success is determined by like how many business clients you have and how much money you make. But actually in the Bible, it says that God causes the seed to grow. So you don't even have a choice on how many people actually listen to the word you preach. All right. So uh, that, all right, are we helping a little bit here? So understand the context of Mark 1 verse 1 in the comments mm -hmm. or thoughts or questions or, or, or whatever. So this is the first statement and it's massively significant. Okay, now, later on, we're going to note, not maybe in the first four or five weeks as we do this, that the reference that Jesus is the son of God is going to begin and end. And if you want to write down your notes, you can now. Um, I might not have put it on, on, on the notes I gave you. I didn't. Uh, Mark 15, 39. And just reference it later. I won't take the time tonight to do that. But Mark 15, 39. Because what, John, what Mark does is in Mark 15, 39, I'll tell you what happens there. Jesus is on the cross and the Roman centurion turns and says, surely this man was the son of God. There you go. Mark told us that I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus, the son of God. And he puts in the mouth of a Roman centurion. Guess what? Even I can recognize that this man is the son of God. And that's what we call an inclusio. It's framing something, the beginning and the end, with one key thought. So what's the gospel of Mark about? Answer, Jesus is the son of God. And he's going to show you that through the whole gospel. And at the climax of the gospel, Mark 15, 39, there, there you go. Jesus is the son of God, affirmed by even a Roman centurion. Now, when we read the Gospel of Mark, here's what you have to remember. We already know that. Uh, it's called the, being the omniscient reader. And that's, we're the reader and we already know. We, we have insights, information. 
So when we're reading a story about Jesus walking and talking with his disciples, they're actually in the story, but we're above the story because we know what Mark's trying to do with this story. And we know where Mark's going to take them. And we're like, oh, guys, you should see, you should watch out. Oh, oh no. They're, oh, they did it. I can't believe they did it because we kind of know what's going on. We already know that Jesus is the son of God. So in chapter four, the disciples are going to go, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And we're like, oh, he's the son of God. Because we know. Because Mark's already told us the answer. Does that make sense? So this is who Jesus is. And now he's going to show us what that means. Okay. Make sense? We'll unpack that more uh, at another time also. Any questions, comments, Senator Marks? All right, here we go. Now, the next two verses, which I think Mark chapter, and a, and a lot of scholars would say this, Mark chapter one, verse two, is actually then the very first verse of the Bible, of the gospel, which is actually significant because he opens the gospel with a quote from the Old Testament. And so, and some of you may have heard me say this before, and some of you may not. So let me, let me repeat. Each one of the gospels, when you open the gospel up, they're already connecting you to an earlier story. The gospel of John begins with, in the beginning. And immediately you go, oh, that's Genesis language. He wants you to think of the book of Genesis. The gospel of Luke begins with two chapters about what was fulfilled among us. And he's quoting the Old Testament like extensively. So the Jesus story doesn't come out of nowhere. It's, it's intimately connected with the Old Testament story. The gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy of Old Testament people. And here's the genealogy of, like, who are these people? So we're reading the, the gospel of Mark, and it's like having a sequel. And if you don't know the prequel, you're going to have trouble with the sequel. If you don't know the first book, which is Genesis through Malachi, you're going to have trouble with Mark because we're already told that he starts his gospel by quoting the Old Testament. And now anybody know, what does he quote? It's Isaiah. He actually quotes three verses here and he compiles them all together, but he only gives credit to Isaiah. So this is under the notes on chapter one, verses two and three. Now, the reason why Isaiah gets the credit is because Isaiah is the major prophet here and the most noteworthy one. And what you might actually note, Carol might recall some, but when I was in Sacramento and Carol was there, uh, I was preaching on this passage because I kind of talked about the Gospel of Mark and said, look, in order to understand the Gospel of Mark, you get to understand what's going on here. And he's quoting from Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3. Now, if you were in our Isaiah study, and you might not remember this, you might recall, and, and let's turn in our Bibles, by the way, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 here, just for a second. But the other two passages are important also, especially the Malachi one. And somebody want to read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. So now, if you, were, if you did Isaiah with us a number of months ago, and if you did Ezekiel with us during the summer, this might, you might recall this. And again, I, you might not, but so let me remind yourself. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are essentially judgment upon the people of Israel 
for failing to follow the book of Deuteronomy. It's called the covenant, the, the book of Deuteronomy. You guys haven't obeyed your job. You haven't done what you're supposed to do. And most notably what they were supposed to do was to follow the laws of God and be a light to the nations. So chapters one through 39 are, and because you disobeyed, you're in big trouble. Anybody remember what's going to happen to them according to Isaiah chapters one through 39? Exiled. Exiled. They're going to be sent into exile. You guys are going to get this. God gave you this land and God can take it away, right? So I brought you into this world and I can take you out. All you parents, right? You know, I can take you out. I gave you this land and I can take it away. God's going to send them into what's called the exile. And Isaiah is talking primarily about the exile of the Northern Kingdom that happened in 721 BC. And then Ezekiel comes along and obviously Jeremiah as well and, and David. And they talk about how the Southern Kingdom of Judah, they also disobeyed and God's going to send them into exile. Chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah all of a sudden changes its tune. 39 chapters of doom and judgment, essentially. Isaiah chapter 40 all of a sudden begins with comfort. Look at that. that that's a change of tune. What do you mean comfort? Everything you've been telling us about how we're in trouble and we're going to be a, a foreign nation is going to conquer us and enslave us and do all these things to our, our women and our daughters. It's not going to be good. And those who survive are going to be taken off to a distant land. What do you mean? Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Right? And notice that Jerusalem is as if the city were a person. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity has been removed, right? Your sins have been forgiven. And we'll talk about that when we get down to chapter verse 14, if we can get there tonight. Because she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Oh, the sins that caused you to go into exile have been forgiven and removed. And guess what? And now it's verse 3 that Mark quotes. A voice is calling, uh, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Now, according to Mark, and we haven't gone this far, but you might know the answer already. Who is the voice in the wilderness? John the Baptist. John the, John the Baptist. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. And the word wilderness is the, the word for desert. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if you were in our Ezekiel study, that might be significant. You might remember in, remember in Ezekiel, he said not only was the southern tribe of Judah going to be sent into exile, but who else was going to go into exile? God. God was. In the book of Ezekiel, God appears to Ezekiel in Babylon. And Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 14, is like, God has left also. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Let me explain. The promise of God bringing a restoration of the people of Israel and of God himself coming back to Jerusalem was fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what's being announced here. So this announcement is massive. It's huge. And note, and let's go back to the Gospel of Mark. And let me see if I can kind of add some details to kind of clarify what that means. What I'm saying is, the restoration from exile that the prophets had promised is what happens in the gospel of Mark chapter one, namely in the coming of Jesus. And Mark is announcing, make a highway in the desert and the desert would be Arabia to the east because that's in Babylon is where God was last seen. Obviously not literally. God was last to the east 
coming from the east. And so note Mark chapter one, what happens is, is John the Baptist, verse four, appeared in the wilderness. There you go. The prophecy from Isaiah 40 said that a voice is going to be crying out in the wilderness. That's verse three, Mark one, verse three. Mark one, verse four, John the Baptist is in the wilderness. He's the fulfillment of that voice. And what is he preaching? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 were saying. Your sins have been forgiven. You've received double for all your sins and your iniquity has been removed. So you see how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this? But what's John the Baptist doing? He's paving the way for God to come. And the God who's going to come is Jesus. Now, one last thing to note, and this will be important later on, but we're going to like file it away, is that Mark actually quotes three verses here, and he combines them into one, and just gets it, he attributes it to Isaiah, and the Isaiah quote is actually verse three. Verse two is actually a composite from uh, the book of Exodus, the book of Malachi. So Malachi 3, that one's actually very important. And the Exodus is too, but the Malachi. So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Right before Mark, you go to Matthew. And right before Matthew, you go to Malachi. And if you go to Malachi chapter 3, again, look at the passage that's quoted here. And we're going to look at, the, at a little bit of its larger context. So if somebody wants to read verses three, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Anybody got it? Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear a way before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. Okay. So I'm going to explain a very important principle of how the Jewish people interpreted the Bible at the time of Jesus. And what it is, is if they quote part of a verse, they have probably the larger whole story in mind. So when Isaiah, when Mark, when Mark quoted Isaiah 40, verse 3, he obviously had verses 1 and 2 in mind also, didn't he? Because Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 was, your sins have been forgiven. And the fact that John the Baptist is preaching, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark only quoted verse 3, but he had the larger context of probably all of Isaiah chapter 40 in mind. And it's probably the whole chapter in mind, by the way. And that the whole chapter was, oh, the end of the exile is over. The forgiveness of our sins is happening. We're going to be restored back to the land of Israel. Now, Malachi 3 is also quoted by Mark, but he only quoted verse 1, or a portion of verse 1. Behold, I'm sending a, uh, my messenger, and he will, he will clear the way before me. That was all that Mark quoted. But look at what it goes on to say. And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. All right, now, some of you that went to my church know very well, you know, we often preach Mark 11 on Palm Sunday. And actually, let's look it up because I'm going to have fun with this. So I think you'll have fun with it. Too. Mark 11. Mark, look at Mark chapter 11 for a second. Keep your finger in Malachi 3, though. Keep your finger in Malachi. Sorry if I didn't say that quickly enough. And go to Mark 11. I'm not going to answer the Mark 11 passage. I'm kind of going to give you a hint to what the answer is. 
Mark 11, verse 11 has the strangest verse in the Bible, if not at least in the Gospel of Mark. Look what happens. Mark 11, verses 1 through 10 is the triumphal entry that we talk about like every year on Palm Sunday. He sits in the back of a donkey. He rides in triumphantly. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then look what happens. Verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the 12 because it was already late. Now, one of the things I want to teach you, by the way, is how to ask questions. Because Mark is begging you to ask questions here. And one of the questions is like, what did he see? If Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he looked around, what did he see? If you're going to tell us that he looked around, you got to tell us what he saw. Mark's going to ask, he wants you to raise this question. He wants you to ask, well, what did he see? And he's going to tell you what he sees, but you have to keep reading. But note, he enters Jerusalem and he went to the temple. Well, if you're a really good reader of the Gospel of Mark, we've been waiting for this moment because Mark opened, go back to Mark 1 for a second, maybe keep your finger in Malachi if you will. Mark opened by quoting Malachi chapter 3, I'm going to send my messenger before your face. But I know, for God so loved the world, you all know the rest of the verse. I don't have to say it, right? I will send my messenger who will prepare your way. And he's going to come to his temple. We've been waiting for chapter since chapter 1, verse 2, for Jesus to come to the temple. Because Malachi tells us that the Lord who's going to come will come to the temple. So Mark knows his reader is waiting for this moment. And he tells the reader he came to the temple. But now look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. And again, a lot of information. We'll, we'll kind of remind ourselves of it over and over and over as we go, as we go further. So I'm going to prepare my way before you. I'll send the messenger, verse 1. Uh, it's the Lord whom you seek, and he'll suddenly come to his temple. And now look at verse 2. And who can endure the day of his coming? Oh, his coming to the temple is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Well, if you're able to endure it, I guess it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's right. like, and who can stand when he appears? By the way, in the book of Revelation, it's one of the great questions. Who can stand? The great day of his wrath is coming. Who can stand? And the answer is, I can. I hope you can. The coming in the book of Malachi that, Mal that Mark is quoting is he's coming to his temple, and it's not good news for everybody. Because it's judgment. And what Jesus does in Mark, in Mark 11, right? Some of you know, he goes into the temple and he overthrows them and he changes tables and he stops people from buying and selling. And, and he, you know, he, he rips on them because that's what Malachi was telling us was going to happen now. All right, so this is the larger context of what's going on. So, what, so, so what, am I, what are we talking about? Number one is Mark wants you to read and know, I'm telling you the story and you guys get the bigger picture. The people in the story don't actually figure it out till later on. Like, who is Jesus? You know who he is. He's the son of God. But here's what I think is more important than, look, than looking up the definition of wilderness. A deserted place. Hey, cool. That's what it means. You don't have to look up the definition of the word wilderness. What you want to do is see how the word wilderness is used by Mark. 
In other words, every time the word wilderness appears, and if your Bible says desert, then every time the word desert appears, mark it. Because what you note is Mark chapter 1, verse 2 says the desert or wilderness. And Mark 1, verse 4, John the Baptist is in the wilderness. And Mark is linking those two verses by connecting them with that word. Ah, and now, by the way, go on a little bit further. Somebody else is going to appear in the wilderness. Anybody know who it is? Satan. Well, true. But before he appears there, it's because somebody else is there. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. It's Jesus. Ding, ding, yeah. ding, 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 right? It's Jesus. Yeah. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Verse 13. He was in the wilderness twice. And so now we know the word wilderness is important. So one of the things I would actually recommend, and I don't recommend you buying a lot of good books or resources. So if you want to do good study, so like for Karun Nakar and, and some of you guys that are pastors or teachers or whatever, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. And what it is, it's a dictionary of the imagery in the Bible. And you want to look up the word wilderness and go, so let's think about it this way. What happens in the, and, and here's how you answer the question. What happens in the wilderness in the Bible? So Jesus is tempted there. So the wilderness is a place of temptation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. What else happens in the wilderness in the Bible? Any encounters with God. Yes. That's where you encounter God. Right? And no, by the way, the spirit made Jesus go into the wilderness. And after the devil left, he was attended by angels. Who has encounters with God in the wilderness? Name, name somebody. Elijah. Elijah? Moses. 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 In fact, he sees a burning bush. And he's still like, take your shoes off. This is holy, right? Moses receives the law in the, in the wilderness. The, the Mount Sinai is in the desert. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. What, what happened every morning in the wilderness when they got up? They had Manna. food. They had Manna. food on the ground. The wilderness is a place of testing because Jesus was tested there. The Israelites were tested for 40 years there. It's a place of revelation where God appears and God manifests himself in the wilderness. It's a place of God's presence. It's a place of God's provision. It's a place of trial. I mean, and so you look up in the dictionary of biblical imagery and they're going to tell you how the word wilderness, not what it means, but what the imagery conveys. Like in a few weeks, probably we'll do, we'll look up the word sea because you don't have to know what the word sea means. Well, know what it means, but how is the word sea used as imagery? We know that there's a lake of fire in the, in, in the book of Revelation. We know Jesus cast demons into the pigs and the pigs run in the sea. We know that Jesus calms the sea. He walks on the sea. The sea is something, the sea parts and the Israelites walk through it. Ah, this, by the way, if you haven't, if you're not aware of this, the Sea of Galilee is not a sea, right? Anthony, you've been there. It's not a sea. It's a lake. But they called it a sea because the sea has meaning. The word sea means something. They knew it was, it's a freshwater lake, right? Mm -hmm. But it's called a sea because lake doesn't have anything like biblical imagery to it. But sea does. In the sea are monsters. Read the book of Job. Like they're fearsome monsters, can't be tamed. So, oh, when he walks on the sea, 
that and he calms the, by the way when jesus calms the sea it says in the greek it says he rebuked it which is the same word for when he called, cast out demons uh, it ain't just a bunch of water folks and so the dictionary of biblical imagery will help you see the imagery and, and the meaning of those imageries so that's actually it's a really helpful thing the one other thing that i recommend sometimes is a bible dictionary and that's that's a dictionary of imagery so this is a new bible dictionary and this is where you look up like who is jonah uh who is mark it probably has a, has a thing on wilderness, but it's going to tell you where the wilderness is located. So this is always good because like, what's a denarius? And you look up a denarius. Oh, it's a coin. Okay, cool. Um, you look up, you know, uh, what, what, what does the, what's the Feast of Tabernacles all about? And it'll tell you what it's all about. Okay. As you read the Gospel of Mark, look for words that are being repeated and note them. And it's hard sometimes because your English Bibles don't always translate them the same way. That's why I think you should study, if you're going to study, with a New American Standard, an ESV, or a Net Bible. And maybe a New Revised Standard, but it's not my favorite. ESV is not my favorite either. But because those translations are going to be more consistent in translating certain words. Okay, I've gone on long enough. We have the context for Jesus coming in. Mark's baptizing with the baptism of repentance. Let's skip down to Mark 1, verses 14 and 15 now. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Somebody want to read Mark 1, 14 and 15? After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now stop for a second, because you probably read this verse a bunch of times. Many of you have. What do you mean after John was taken into custody? What? What's he talking about? And then when Herod or... or How do you know that? You're right, John, by the way. How do you know that? Because you already know the story. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, whoever Mark's writing to, they already know the story. They already knew that John was taken into custody. Does that make sense? So we read it and gloss over it, but like, oh... So it's important, you, you, many of you heard that, you know, in order to study the Bible well, you need to know who the author is and who the author's writing to. Well, here we go. Whoever he's writing to, by the way, I think they're Romans because a Roman centurion says this is the son of God. And the very first verse was about Caesar Augustus. They got to be Romans uh, and they got to be familiar with that. But they already know the story. At least they, at least they know about John being arrested. And then Jesus comes into Galilee. And they probably know what Galilee is, too, by the way, because he doesn't tell them where Galilee is located or what it is. So when we read the story, start asking questions like, what do you mean he came into custody? Oh, they must already know the story. So well, that'll help us become more attentive readers. Notice he was preaching the gospel and the word for gospel is the same word that we found in verse one. Right. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Now, the word Christ, by the way, back up in your notes. The word Christ is the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Messiah. And the English translation would be the anointed one. So Greek is actually, uh, Christ is actually a Greek word, Christos. It's not a translation. It's It's just a Greek word in English letters. Messiah is not an English word. It's a Hebrew word. The anointed one. 
And the anointed one in the Old Testament, I'll, I'll go over this briefly, is either the king or the priest. And I would suggest that Mark wants us to think of Jesus as the king. It's the gospel of Jesus the Christ. And by the way, Jesus Christ is not a name. It's Jesus the Christ. That would be the <clears> best <throat> way to translate this. The best translation would be Jesus the Christ, meaning Jesus the king. He's about, and so now Mark 1 verse 14, Jesus is saying, verse 15, uh, actually verse 14, he's preaching the gospel. And I think I helped you with, uh, with this on my notes. Here we go. I'm, I'm going to skip over the top part. Oh, no, I'm on letter B. Under, uh, if you see my notes that I handed out, uh, 1, 14 through 15, preaching the gospel of God. And it's summarized in verse 15. In other words, verse 14 said he's preaching the gospel. And the question is, well, what's the gospel? Well, the first thing he says is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God's at hand. Now, I would suggest, and I didn't really put this on your notes very well, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God's at hand are the same thing. Whatever it is he's announcing, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God means that God's the king. And by the way, this might be the topic for next week or in a few weeks from now. Like, what's the most common topic of Jesus? What, what topic did Jesus talk about more than any other topic? Uh, and the answer is the kingdom of God. God's the king. But Mark has already told us that Jesus is the king because the word Christ is essentially the word king, right? It's the Messiah. It's the anointed one. It's the coming king. Remember, it's the king like David. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God. Now, my translation says the kingdom of God's at hand, but a lot of your translations say the kingdom of God is near. Is that what you guys have? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the word near, and this is number three, <clears throat> it commonly refers to being near, like being close by. Uh, more than it means near in terms of time. So we think near means, okay, well, you know, like uh, um, I'm near your house now, meaning I'm almost there. No, it actually means near in like, in reference to um, a space, like I'm near you, like, can you back off? You're too, you're too close. So it has that sense of nearness. So Jesus is going to say, I think it's in the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God's at hand. And what do you, like, what do you mean? The kingdom of God's at hand. It's like, I'm standing right here. It's in your midst. In other words, the kingdom of God's present in Jesus. And it's coming in Christ's presence. Because let me go back. What is the essence of the kingdom of God? And the answer is where God is the king. And Jesus has just been baptized. And the baptism of Jesus was his anointing. So you could say the kingdom of God began when Jesus was baptized. But we also know, because we're the omniscient readers, we know the whole, we, we kind of know the whole story, right? We also know that Jesus is going to be crowned king on the cross. So if it's near in the person of Christ, it's near because the cross is near the event. And that's kind of near in terms of time, but it, it's more near in terms of space and location. It's nearness is because Jesus is that king and I'm in your midst. The time element of it is probably pointing us to the cross ultimately. So you could say the kingdom of, you know, when did the kingdom of God begin? You can say at his baptism, because he was anointed by the spirit. You could say at the cross, because he was crowned king on the cross and crucified. 
You can say at his resurrection, or you can say at the ascending of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter, when he ascended, I'm sorry, when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one. Because when he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He took his seat in the throne. But he, he was already crowned king earlier. So kind of, all right, whatever. He was crowned king, and that's when he took his throne. Nonetheless, that's what's happening. The gospel is announcing the coming of the king. And this is going to be a problem, folks, because the world he's coming into has a whole bunch of other kings already in it. And they don't like other kings. There are threats to them. For the sake of argumentation, couldn't you say as well at the manger, because he was being worshipped and his deity in his kingship and in his coming sacrifice. You could say at the incarnation, if you want, at his birth. Yeah. If you want there, right? Because because he, uh, he was born the king. Sure. I think the gospels point us more towards the actual act of inaugurating him into his throne. Okay. And I think what the wise guys or wise men are doing is they're simply recognizing that he is a king. Amen. Yeah. It's kind of like saying, uh, you know, your dad's the king and you're the son. <clears throat> And someday you're going to take on his throne. And the wise men are coming to the, to the infant Jesus, the baby Jesus, saying someday you're going to take over the throne. So Maybe. they're acknowledging his kingliness. Yeah. But are, are they acknowledging that he actually is the king now? Well, depending on how you want to read it, sure. Okay, okay. You, you could yeah. go that way. But I think you're looking more at the four great okay. events of his baptism, okay. uh, his death, his know. resurrection, or his ascension into heaven. I think you're looking, and that's why, by the way, the Gospels were referred to the, the kingdom of God. It's like not yet here, but it is already here because it's kind of all of the above during the, during the four Gospel stories. Okay. So, Makes sense? Okay. One last uh, big thought, and then, we'll, and then I'll leave it for tonight, and you can ask any questions you, you want here. Here we go. Verse 14, he's preaching the Gospel. The question is, what is the Gospel? And the answer in chapter one is that the kingdom of God is here. That's the gospel. And so when I say Jesus is Lord, what I mean by Lord is I mean he's the king. And that's what Mark's saying. The gospel is that Jesus is the king. And it's at hand. It's here. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems. By the way, my financial comfort doesn't like another king either because Jesus says I have to sell all my possessions and follow him. So I battle with Jesus on King on that on my on my own financial level. Uh, Jesus says, "I don't really care about your pride or your status. Take up your cross." And I, you know, it's shameful to carry a cross, and it looks bad being a Christian. So I don't always tell people that I'm a Christian. See what we're being the King means. He's in charge and he sets the rules, and that's going to cause conflicts in all kinds of aspects of our own personal lives. And as well as the politicalness. So it's both personal and corporate there also. Um, Rob, can okay. you repeat your very first statement there when you said, what is the, the gospel, gospel in is chapter the one? The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. Which yep. is that Jesus similar is to that Jesus. the kingdom of God. The kingdom, yep, the kingdom of God's at hand and Jesus is that king. Now, really quickly, there's one last thought. The end of verse 15 says, repent and believe. Now, notice that repent, if you were in Isaiah study, and if you're just coming on tonight, recall, that's what you have to do to have your sins forgiven. Isaiah says the kingdom's over, the kingdom is coming, and, and the exile is over because your sins have been forgiven. 
but only if you repent. That's why Malachi says he's coming to his temple and who can stand? And the answer is the one who repents can stand. And if you know the Bible already, you're kind of figuring out that's going to be a problem for the Pharisees and other people. Because I ain't got nothing to repent for. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Pharisee. What are you talking about? And by the way, it's also a problem for you and me because I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a good Christian. Or my neighbor doesn't repent, need to repent because they're a good person and God will never put them in hell. Right? Or because, because so we have all kinds of reasons why we don't need to repent. Now, notice the other thing, by the way, if you look at my Facebook feed, what's interesting is, and I'm not saying that the answers on my Facebook feed were, are wrong. I'm just saying that most of them are actually incomplete. But a lot of the comments were like, you have to believe this. 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 Mark's pretty careful, pretty clear. You have to repent and believe. It's not just believe. It's repent and believe. Because if you recognize that Jesus is the king, then you need to repent because we've all lived our whole lives as though something else were king. And don't think it's just Caesar, by the way, because what king means, go back to the Garden of Eden, king means who makes the rules. And Adam and Eve said, no, we make the rules. We'll decide what good and evil is for ourselves. And we all do that. Okay. That's a good start. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? I had, I had a question. Go ahead, Leah, Leah. If the kingdom of God is here. Yes. Can't, is this, is this a, can, can I, my, my mind was segueing this to, this is also the end times has started since the kingdom of God is near. That's so correct. considering everything, like I'm hearing a lot more Christians talk about the end times and I keep going, we've already been in the end times. Exactly. Like the stuff mm -hmm. we're seeing now, we, we've had a gnarly history for a long time, folks, you know? That, that's correct. That's okay. right. And so. We American Christians think, oh, the, the end times haven't begun because persecution isn't here. And it's just our brother Karunakar is on the line here, and uh, he's a brother in Christ, and we're all members of one body. And I think he can attest that persecution of Christians is alive and well. Amen. Yeah. It doesn't have to be in America for it to have started. But the point actually that you're making, Lee, is an even better one, because the kingdom of God begins with Jesus, and that is the beginning of what we call the end times. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.